Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Hello, everyone. It's Michael McNutt with Weedy. Today, from our 2023 Spring Conference, Creating Consistent Success and Solutions in Value-Based Care, our presenters, Dr. James Dumdera with Pioneer Physicians Network, and Rick Forrester, Senior Vice President of Value-Based Care with Privia Health. Today's moderator is Michael Patwell with NFX, who also serves as co-chair for Weedy's Payment Models Workgroup. Thank you, Michael, and good day, everyone. <clears throat> both Dr. Damdera and Rick Forrester are both uh, experts and leaders uh, experienced with value-based care, and they will be sharing their experiences with us today. So I believe we'll get a glimpse into the steps our industry can take uh, to build success and move towards alternative payments. So I'll turn the microphone to Rick Forrester first. Sure. And good morning or good afternoon. Sorry, everybody. Uh, we made the change over, I guess, depending on your time zone. But um, good to be talking with you all today about a topic uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, just a little bit of background on myself. So um, I've been working at Privia Health since the early days, was one of the early uh, employees of the company and have really been on a fun ride helping to build a primary care centric uh, physician enablement and medical group uh, across the country. And my area of expertise uh, nowadays is really in the value-based care realm where I am responsible for overseeing uh, over a million different uh, patient lives in value-based contracts. We have over a hundred different contracts covering Medicare, Medicare Advantage, commercial, Medicaid, and really, our mission is to partner with physician groups, uh, mainly, like I said, primary care, but we have uh, a lot of medical specialties as well. And our goal is really to partner with those practices, help them run their, their office better, some of their back office operations, sometimes like on their electronic health record and revenue cycle, but ultimately move them to the next paradigm around value-based care. And that's what we'll be talking a little bit about today. Um, so, Michael, if you go to the next slide. So, just wanted to talk a little bit about our view into how do we transform physician practices at scale consistently to be able to generate really strong value-based care success on a consistent basis, right, to the topic of, of this, uh, this um, session. And I think consistent value-based care performance is something that's very hard to do. We're really past a lot of the early innings of value-based care where you could just sort of throw your hat in and participate and, uh, you know, maybe you'd be able to get some sort of limited success or maybe you are able to really focus in on one single contract or payer and be able to you know, succeed in that specific niche. But as soon as you start to get into multi-payer, Medicare, Medicare Advantage, commercial Medicaid, as soon as you start to go across broader practices, different types of practices, certain, certainly different markets, it gets to be a very, very hard challenge to be, how do you create that consistent success? And so at Privia, we talk a bit about our transformational journey. And this is how we try and think about taking our physicians from start to finish 
uh, along, along the journey. And I won't go through this in excessive detail, and you can certainly read a lot of the, the, the uh, bullet points here, but just sort of some of the high-level points from left to right is, first of all, we really start with trying to get the practice fundamentals right from the beginning. We really believe that for a physician office to excel at some of the more advanced concepts along the right, in capitation, risk, managing total cost of care, getting into specific disease states and problems, they have to be able to run their office effectively on a base level, uh, having to do with their EHR, revenue cycle, payer contracting, and you have to set that foundation right. Then we believe that you really have to enhance the patient experience, really regardless of what environment you're in, whether it be fee-for-service or value-based care, and patient experience is about how do you attract, retain, and engage your patients um, at scale consistently in order to engage them. And for me as a value-based care guy, if we can't engage a patient, we're dead in the water in terms of anything we want to accomplish. And then steps three through five is really about how do you take on that value-based care component where we really believe in getting that bread and butter basics right, quality, risk adjustment, understanding attribution, understanding your data, engaging with physicians. And that is something uh, many times you just work on forever. <laughs> and But that becomes sort of the new normal in terms of your day-to-day -day operations. And then when you've got those things settled, then you can get into a bit more advanced concepts around managing total cost of care, curating your referral network to send your patients to high-value specialists, beginning to work on specific disease states or patient populations that might need more help. And then this all positions you for the last stage end game of managing patients in risk or global capitation, uh, where there are uh, certainly a lot of accountability for the entirety of the success of your relationship with your patients, um, as well as getting those fundamentals right and that comprehensive care right. You've really got to uh, position yourself well from a risk management perspective, thinking about incentives at a much deeper level um, and engaging with your physicians at a whole other level. And so that's sort of the broad uh, run through in terms of how we try and create consistent success. Um, you know, some of the fundamentals here are uh, we believe in a methodical approach. Um, you maybe can accelerate some of this movement, depending on where a physician practice is and how are they coming to you. We work with practices of all different shapes and sizes. Could be a solo practice that is only operated in a fee-for-service world or a big multi-hundred uh, physician group that is sophisticated in value-based care. So some of that, those steps can be accelerated, but the methodical path along the way is really important. Um, we really believe in engaging physicians very thoughtfully in this whole experience. We do not think of uh, suits like myself. I, uh, I guess, call myself a suit. And so, you know, I know for myself, I don't want to be talking to doctors about uh, engaging their patients in behavioral health. I want other doctors talking to doctors about uh, how to improve the state of the population. And then one of the last key principles is we really believe that value-based care happens at the point of care. And Michael, if you don't mind going to my last slide here, um, this is just a, a single example um, around the point of care experience. But in general, we really believe that 
Uh, to create consistent value-based care success, you've got to have uh, ways in which you engage your clinicians and caregivers at the point of care when they are working with a patient. It can't be a spreadsheet or a piece of paper that you hand to a physician and then you hope three weeks later when the patient's in the office, they remember what you told you, what uh, you told them three weeks ago. It's really got to be there in the point of care. And so this is an example of, of where we worked uh, very deeply with our EHR partner to co-design a solution, uh, which includes a sort of a user interface for ordering referrals, but also some backend data. And essentially what we learned in our experience uh, digging into referrals is most physicians' referral patterns are all over the place, to be honest, and, and can really be um, designed in a myriad of ways and based off of how they've always done things, who they know in their network and so on, but net was not necessarily data-based. And so what we did was we paired uh, external data sources, such as from payers, to identify who were high-value specialists or facilities in a region. We paired that with clinical input, we wanted to ask our physicians, would you send your family to that specialist or not? So the payer might think that they're high value, but based off of your own experience, if that is not the case, that's not the that's not a preferred uh, specialist to us. And so how do you combine this data with the clinical input to create a virtual narrow network of specialists and facilities in an area and then input that into the workflow so that when you are making a orthopedic consult referral, you are able to see who are those high value specialists, allows us to track that, see if the referral happened to the right place and so on. Just one way in which we're really trying to improve the point of care workflow, again, to create that consistent success. Otherwise, data is all over the place. It's in spreadsheets on pieces of paper, and it's going to be very hard for physicians to do any of this across their patient panel. Um, so that's a little bit of a, a, a background in terms of what Privy does and how we how we think about this challenge. And I'll turn it to Dr. Don Barrett. Thanks, Rick. Um, yeah, can we go to the next slide, please? Uh, thanks, everybody. Um, my name is James Domdera. There's just a quick update. I don't work for New Health Collaborative any longer. I'm a I'm a physician. Uh, at Pioneer Physicians Network, and I'm also the VP of, of uh, Professional Standards with them. And, and, and I think I'm gonna, just going to take all the state things that Rick just said and just amplify them and, and just show you how we're doing our version of everything he just said, because it, it's a, he's 100% correct. Uh, Pioneer is a 100% a physician-owned primary care practice in Northeast Ohio. Uh, we've been around for what, nearly 30 years and we've grown dramatically, uh, dramatically since then. We started our value-based journey more than 10 years ago. We partnered with a local health system in one of the first MSSP ACOs in the country. Uh, we, we quickly recognized the value of team-based approaches and grasped the uh, NCQA PCMH model. Um, next slide, please. Um, but we recognized that, that we wanted more out of a value-based arrangement that we could get just on our own or under the ACO model. We wanted to engage payers, just like Rick said. It, when you start to think multi-payers, 
you, you really need to think differently. Uh, and so we partnered in 2019 with a provider enabler, um, a nationwide provider enabler called Agilon. Um, next slide. So that we could form uh, through Agilon a partnership called Paradigm Senior Care Advantage. And through Paradigm, we now have five full risk Medicare Advantage products uh, that we are again at full risk for. We're also part of, of ACO Reach. We were formerly part of DCE, now ACO Reach. Uh, and so this has kind of been our journey toward value. Next slide. Uh, we recognized from early on in our ACO days uh, and, uh, and forward the value of primary care. I, I know everybody here probably knows all these stats, but but I think it bears repeating. Uh, for every dollar spent in health care in this country, only a nickel goes toward primary care. Uh, you could double the amount of spend on primary care and still save money to the healthcare system because the data are clear that when you put more primary care docs in an area, the cost of care tends to go down and the quality of care tends to go up. So we've leveraged that and we have a partner that's leveraged that and our payer partners, quite honestly, uh, have, have a, a buy into this as well, who do a data-driven team-based approach. So I thought I'd give you just in the next few moments, just kind of a peek under the hood of how we actually do this on a day-by-day -day basis to get to value-based success. Uh, next slide, please. One of the first things we did was to build our own data repository. You know, there's always disagreement in terms of what is the source of truth of the data. Uh, from a payer perspective, they're going to say claims data, and it makes sense. They're going to say, you know, we know that that mammogram care gap has been closed because we paid for that mammogram three months ago, for example. But providers often say that it's the EHR. You know, so if I documented that the patient had a colonoscopy in 2017, it means they had a colonoscopy in 2017 and that care gap was closed. In reality, the truth is probably somewhere in between. And so we've built in-house our own um, data warehouse where we pull claims data from our payers, uh, our tightly aligned payers, and also from the EHR. And we have a live refresh daily dashboard that providers can go to. It's unblinded, so I get to see how everybody else is performing and they get to see if I'm performing. But more importantly, Rick mentioned this point earlier, it's not just numbers. You can click through this and actually get patient data, patient level data. You can sort it by date. So I can see what are the care gaps that I need to close tomorrow, next week, next month. Actually, my medical assistant is back in the office right now, kind of preparing charts for this week and, and next. And she's going through this identifying uh, care gaps for us to use. Next slide, uh, please. We, we do this at a higher level approach and we use our partnership with Agilon for this to send out monthly to our providers, sometimes even more frequently, a physician's insights dashboard. So now our, our providers get not only clinical uh, updates on how they're doing, but, but also cost and utilization updates. So they any provider can go in there and say, what's my medical margin or my MLR? What's my RAF score? And more importantly, where are my opportunities for improvement? Um, just, just like Rick said, if, if I just hand somebody this report, it gets thrown in a pile and never gets looked at. But now if somebody can click through and say, here are my opportunities for improvement, uh, give me some tools, now we have uh, a real game changer. Next slide, please. 
We also do this on uh, operational analytics, kind of the business of the business, so to speak. So once again, this, this is something we built in-house. This is through in, built in Power BI. All of our providers, again, have access to this. And I can, at a moment's notice, get a snapshot of the organization. How are we doing with referrals? How are new patients doing? Are our providers doing their documentation? We can look at this to see the health of the organization at any given moment, all part of our overall approach to data, data, data. Uh, next slide. And finally, just the last thing I'm going to show you uh, uh, is, is we have point of care support around coding. Uh, I think we heard with the last session you know, around how important HCC coding is, and it is very important. We view HCC codes as a way of better understanding the disease burden of your population of patients. And so we, we provide to our providers a little pop-up, and, and actually we're in the process of deploying this. So there's an old paper version we actually use too that says to the provider, hey, doc, last year you coded this patient E11.65, diabetes out of control. What do you think? Does that apply this year? And we give our providers full, full control on this. So if the provider says, no, it doesn't apply anymore, they click dismiss, and we never remind them of it again. So it's just a simply reminder system to help our providers better uh, describe our patient's disease burden, uh, which then translates again into better deployment of resources down, down the line. Uh, next slide. And so this is my final kind of, I'll leave you with this before we turn it over to back to Michael. Uh, but our success in value-based care echoes what, what we heard Rick say earlier. Uh, we have a culture of change and a culture of value that we've been doing for a long time. We are all in, as an organization, we are all in on full risk, from providers to administrators to everybody in between. And we believe we do that through the power of primary care. Uh, we have aligned with partners that share that vision with us through Agilon and our uh, payer partners. Uh, and one of, the, one of the keys to this is upfront investment. I think the days of, of saying, let's be successful in value-based care, simply through uh, the hope that you might get shared savings a year or two down the road, uh, or maybe some paper performance if you go through some quality gates, um, you're never going to drive value that way. You drive value through upfront investment in primary care, then that funds the outcomes that we're looking for. And we drive that through data, data, data. We arm our providers and our teams with all the data that they need to effectively work the levers of change to get value-based care. And I'll stop there. Well, I have, thank you. Great. Thank you, Dr. Dundera. Um, there's no questions yet, but please enter any questions. Um, quite a uh, concise of... Uh, um, I got a question for you, though, Dr. Dundera. The... You say you're full risk, um, and I'm not sure if you or, or Rick were on. We, we actually were fortunate to have uh, Liz Fowler from CMMI yeah. uh, speak to us on ACO Reach, and, and it looks like Pioneer Physician Network is an ACO Reach. At least I heard that. Yes. Um, what, what has been your early assessment on that program, um, specifically the, you know, the risk adjustment and the specific uh, uh, socio uh, demographic type, uh, um, uh, it was the deprecation index that was also added onto that. Um, Dr. Fowler was saying that that's kind of 
uh, the kind of moving away from that. Have you seen any of that? And, and just in general, uh, how, how are you performing on at your ACO reach uh, participation? Well, so, you know, obviously this is the first year of ACO reach, but I can tell you from our DCE performance, the direct, our direct contracting performance, which was, you know, kind of the, the step right before ACO reach, we, we did okay in that. We, we've done much better in the MA space. Uh, and, and one of the, one of the reasons we think is just, you know, the, even even though these should be two similar populations, an MA patient panel and a, and a Medicare fee for service, they are different and they are they are limited. Uh, the, the MA patients do have a kind of a limited network to choose from, whereas our MSSP patients don't. Uh, so so we worked um, just like Privia has done. We worked to build our own tiered preferred provider network, uh, specialist network. So when we send our patients out, we try to choose one of our higher value specialists. Now, obviously, the patient choice is very important. So if the patient says, I want to see Dr. Jones, then they get to see Dr. Jones. No problem. Um, but, but all things being equal, maybe Dr. Smith delivers the same outcomes um, at a lower cost. Uh, we're trying to do that for, for our ACO reach population. Uh, the health equity piece of this is, is interesting, you know, because it's written, it's written into ACO reach. We've always done it before, but it, now it's a kind of an upfront piece of it. And value-based care really lends itself to health equity because it takes you off that fee-for-service hamster wheel. So now I need extra resources for certain populations of patients, and I have that through value-based care. Uh, previously, if I had a patient who had transportation needs or they lived in a food desert and they don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, or they don't have you know, anybody to help teach them, how do I cook this food that I just bought? Um, now I have dietitians and social workers and care managers that I can have help those patients. Whereas before, maybe if they came into the office, I could get a fee-for-service visit out of it and talk to them, and then it's good luck for the next six months. So, so I think really the ACO reach model for us uh, and value-based in general has has been a great tool for health equity for our patients. I think it's early for us to say how well that's played out, but uh, I'm encouraged by it. Yeah, I pushed. Uh, I believe she said there'll be some reports out by the end of the month or at the very latest, the end of next month, um, where they're going to try to uh, do some public reporting on the success or uh, struggles. Uh, same question to you, Rick. I don't know if any across mm-hmm. your uh, wide network if there's any participation in MSSP or, or um, ACO reach? Yeah, so we are, we're very engaged in MSSP back since 2014. Um, I think today we operate something like nine different ACOs across, call it 180,000 different lives and have had, um, you know, a really good success rate. Many of those nine are in, in the enhanced track. Um, you know, I think to your question, so we evaluated ACO reach in depth and really, you know, made a thoughtful decision that we didn't think it was right for us uh, and in our markets and due to the, some of the specific nuances of the program. But I think the, um, I, I am very encouraged by direct contracting and ACO reach in having that sort of upper tier global capitation option for provider groups to participate. I think my my preference is that there are many different types of physician groups. And there's maybe this old thinking 
uh, by some people that a physician group is a physician group and just, you know, they all should be on the same track. And really, I think that there's all these different types of physician groups. And so you have to have options based off of who they are, where they are. Maybe some of them need to be pushed into certain tracks. Yes. Um, but if there's say an ACO reach tier, which is a global capitation, full risk option, maybe a middle tier of a shared savings, like an MS, a lot of what we see in MSSP, and then a lower tier, like what you see in primary care first, or the old CPC plus model for maybe a smaller physician group. I think it's very positive to have multiple options where provider groups can really choose their own adventure. And like I said, you might force uh, somebody into an adventure uh, at some stage. Um, so I like those options. What I will say, you know, and just sort of looking from afar from ACO reach is it's good to have those options, but the program infrastructure looks very different across those options. And I think that's an opportunity for payers, for CMS to standardize some of those those components on the back end that really actually end up having a huge impact in the day-to-day care. So what do I mean? Things like quality measures being consistent across these different payer programs, the risk adjustment model, the benchmarking model, uh, maybe it's the social area deprivation index as another example. When these programs are each created in isolation and come up with their own set of quality measures or risk adjustment model, it creates a lot of difficulty, I think, for physician groups who are trying to create that consistent success in value-based care where I've got an ACO reach that is like this. I've got a MA program like that. I got a commercial program like that. And then all of a sudden you have a hundred different quality measures that you're trying to manage. And so I think there's definitely an opportunity to streamline um, some of those things. And, and that actually might help some of the early days of these programs um, versus sort of like, we're just going to try a different model. Hmm. Yeah. And you might be happy. I don't know if you were on Dr. Fowler's uh, session, but they are going to be announcing three new programs. One she mentioned was an advanced uh, primary care. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another one was a state total cost of care. So it looks like um, they're not waiting for a lot of results from ACO reach, although they will be publicly reporting some soon. Um, she seemed pretty up, upbeat about it, um, especially um, when October 1st of last year came around and a lot of the awardees dropped out. Yep. Um, she also mentioned, I think they're up to about 140. So they actually recovered uh, and got additional, um, I think it was like 135, now it's 140. So yep. some of the folks that dropped out either rejoined or uh, new uh, participants were awarded. Uh, ACL reach. So she's pretty up yeah. beat about that. And three new, at least three new programs coming out. Uh, if, I, if I could just comment on that, I think it's really interesting where if you look at all traditional Medicare beneficiaries, what's really interesting, I think the latest data is that only 40% of all beneficiaries are in a MSSP or ACO like program like ACO reach only 42%, which was actually shocking. I think when the first time I, I heard it. And so there's still just a ton of physician groups out there who are not participating in a program uh, that there is opportunity on we kind of call it sort of the low end participation. But what I do think is very encouraging is you do see a, a sort of rise to the top where sophisticated 
physician organizations who are more experienced in value-based care, uh, such as Dr. Tom Dara's group, uh, many of the you know previous uh, groups as well, we're, we're 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 jumping levels. So we you know we we're quickly going right into the enhanced program as an example, or speeding our acceleration to full risk in Medicare Advantage based programs. Um, and so I think there's an encouraging story there around for the ones who have been in it for a while and engaging, uh, they're jumping into those higher risk programs. But you still also have to solve for that 58% that is really still sitting on the sidelines, which is uh, quite a bit. Yeah, the l- latest numbers I saw with uh, Becker's Hospital is like 13 million in MSSP and maybe two or three million in ACO reach. So yeah, there's there's a wide gap. So um, hopefully, um, anything you want to add to that, uh, Dr. Dumdera? Yeah, I, I think I think those are some really good points. And and uh, I think one of the problems with value-based care where we are right now, and, and Rick kind of mentioned this. So if, if I imagine myself, I'm a small, let's say two provider group in the middle of Nebraska, and I have to do value-based arrangements with three different MA programs and Maybe a couple of commercials come in and say they want to do a value base, and I'm going to join some sort of CMS thing. You know, you know, like maybe maybe I, I'm not ready for um, ACL reach, so I'm going to do primary care first. Uh, I have to have a substantial infrastructure in order to manage what metrics am I supposed to do, what financial targets, what rules and regulations do I have to to follow. It becomes nearly impossible, and unfortunately. The answer is, you know what, fee-for-service is easier, so I'm just going to do that. So it's value-based right now is almost limited exclusively to either practices that have partnered with a Privia or an Agilon or an Alidate or one of those nationwide provider enablers um, or or their larger primary care uh, or, or multi-specialty groups who have some sort of infrastructure that can manage it. In, in, my, in my practice, it's both. We have We've had a we partner with somebody and we have some infrastructure. And honestly, that's the only way we could be even have a hint of success in this. Uh, just just from a keeping track of, of metrics perspective alone. Otherwise, it's just go back to, to fee for service. And and that really needs to be kind of one of the big driving forces of these as we go forward is how do you make value-based care the easy button for every practice across the country? How do you do that? Because right now, unfortunately, fee for services. And we had a couple of questions from the panel uh, with Dr. Fowler. And uh, one of the questions was, you know, there's, there's uh, some articles and um, this gentleman, I think it was Mike, Mike Kennedy, right? You're on um, where they're bucking the VBC side and they're, you know, just, you know, taking another stab, you know, making sure fee for service is working for them, uh, especially post pandemic, you know, the pandemic kind of, put a squash on that. And a lot of folks, a lot of providers looked at, you know, going to capitation, if that was going to be the future, uh, they needed to get paid, um, even though they couldn't have a fee for service uh, mechanism methodology there. Um, So yeah, there was a lot of questions. And um, Dr. Fowler was, you know, she said she had a a framework to measure success, uh, certification on, you know, reducing cost. And then just, you know, a focus on the future direction. So it's uh, quite, you know, for, for groups like both uh, uh, Privia and, and, um, and Pioneer, it seems like uh, the future is, is bright. I do have a question. There's still no questions coming in from the, which I think we drained them all from, from uh, Dr. Fowler. 
Um, you mentioned HCC and coding and all that. Are you doing that obviously pre-visit and then post encounter submission and all that? Or uh, it seems like both of your organizations are pretty robust on both value-based care, but also on the risk adjustment side. So could you speak a little bit to your HCC coding and how you're, you're taking care of that before the visit, after the visit? Yeah, I can tell you that one of the things that that probably doesn't work is just educating providers. Just to say, you know, if you just say to providers, hey, by the way, there's these things called HCC codes. And in fact, here might even be a list of them. And so you got to do it. Um, that probably is just not enough. Uh, mm -hmm. In my experience, both here at Pioneer and in previous uh, organizations, uh, I, I've seen I've seen it pay providers educated till we're all blue in the face and it just doesn't move the the needle. What you need some core support, um, and and so in our instance, we have uh, physicians and nurses who actually go through the chart, scrub the chart, look for care opportunities. Uh, we also do that then from a claims perspective, and we deliver that to the providers up front, and we do that multiple times throughout the year. Uh, I mean, one of the one of the values of the annual wellness visit is not only can I go over um, the the patient's needs. You need a tetanus update or you haven't had a colonoscopy in a couple of years, but also look for those coding opportunities they missed. Uh, so so we it's a multi-stepped approach because if you if you just take it one way, especially in education, it, it, it won't get done. And, and again, we're we're very we're very mindful of this is it really is a way to better understand your population of patients. It's not just how do I code better to make more money. If you do that, that's just going to get you short-term gains. You really have to think of it as, how do I better understand my patients? So, for example, uh, we are in the process of rolling out a kidney care program uh, through a nationwide kidney care provider that we're going to partner with. And so so it's going to be uh, initially limited to those with uh, stage four and stage five chronic kidney disease. So then the next question is, well, how do I identify those? And if I've died if I've diagnosed all my patients as um, N18.9, I think that's the code, you know, kidney disease unspecified uh, or R something, 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 abnormal kidney function test, uh, I'm not going to understand my population of patients. But if I say, you know, I've been, I've been proactive in my HCC coding approaches. So now I've got a cohort of patients that have been coded N18.4, N18.5, chronic kidney disease, stage four and five. Now I just simply run a report, pull those patients out, and we manage them. Uh, and so that's the other that's the other value of HCC coding that we brought to our providers uh, and, and why we take such an aggressive approach for it. And Rick? Yeah, that, I think Dr. John there is right. You know, pairing the training and education, but then how is it actually going to work in the workflow on a day-to-day -day basis? So critical with the support staff. I, so I don't, I don't want to repeat what he said, but, um, you know, I think the two other points I would make is, you know, I think there is really an opportunity, um, again, leveraging the workflow to incorporate not only recapture gaps, previously diagnosed conditions, but also suspect gaps or clinically inferred gaps. Uh, and I hate to be the first guy to use AI, uh, the words AI in a panel, but um, I'm encouraged by the opportunity to improve some of the ways in which physicians can code and document appropriately and accurately without necessarily having to sift through old records and charts um, or faxes that they receive um, to, to identify those appropriate conditions. 
And then the second point is I think there is really, I think physician groups need to be thinking about the compliance element of risk adjustment, especially going forward. You're seeing increased scrutiny. I think the first wave was really targeting uh, Medicare Advantage plans in terms of you're only upcoding, you're never downcoding, using home assessments, you know, purely for you know documentation purposes, non-clinical purposes. I think you're going to see not only an increased emphasis on Medicare Advantage plans, um, but then also you know more targeting of physician groups. And I think that physician groups really have to understand um, that risk adjustment is about accurate appropriate documentation, not increasing risk score, which is such a dangerous thing that, you know, there's there's a wild west when you talk to some groups um, about what they're doing out there. And I think really having capabilities around ensuring you're compliant, having the right process uh, around that, it's going to be really important going forward too. Yeah. Sounds like, yeah, that at least the pioneer, you seem to be working with uh, subject matter experts and coding experts that you don't really need any type of like natural language processing or AI as, as Rick is mentioning. Well, it, it's funny fact. you mentioned that. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm in Boston right now at a conference for our, um, for our EHR vendor. I mean, it, I'm not, it doesn't matter what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm here at this conference for our EHR vendor and it seems like, um, you know, every sentence is a noun and a verb and the word AI. It just, AI is all anybody is talking about at their conference, it's kind of the same conference last October, nobody mentioned it. So it is the hot topic right now. They're showing some products that of course, you know, you just type in, make my make my patients care better and magically AI solves all your problems. Solves everything. Right, so uh, I, I think AI is a tool that'll get used, but ultimately it's the human being and and Rick is right. I mean, for those, for those practices that look at HCCs as an opportunity just to, you know, improve, improve my top line, uh, you got to be careful. Yeah, uh, for see. those of us that use HCC as a way to understand our population, so so for example, the new version of HCC is coming out next year, version 28, and um, it'll probably for many providers uh, end up in a reduction of of risk score as certain codes go away. Um, you know, we we looked at that and we said, okay, we'll work with that, but we have o- other levers to control value based outcomes. We we can work on keeping patients out of the hospital. We can work on uh, delivering care management resources to them. We can work on setting them to high value specialists or uh, look at their medications and, and, and where can we save them money and, and the system money. So, so HCC is just a piece of the puzzle. And if you look at it like that and it's a way to understand, you'll do fine with this process with or without AI. Yeah, no, and, and some of these uh, penalties in the press in the last few months are pretty scary yeah. um, with all the upcoding and such. So I, I agree. If we practice value-based care, there shouldn't be a need for it. You just need accurate documentation care for every patient and uh, it should take care of itself. But I mean, one of the things I'm, 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 I don't mean to interrupt, but one of the things, you know, the exciting thing about value-based care is you don't need to bend the curve much. A, a one or 2% savings mm-hmm. is substantial. So, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. You just have to slowly change that curve. Take some of those high cost patients, high utilizing patients, and kind of look for the reason why and change that and you'll be successful in it. So so, so we, we tend to look very globally at, at things and, and not worry about any one piece of it. 
Wow. I, I miss Northeast Ohio, lived there for five years. Seemed like there was a uh, Cleveland clinic on every corner. Yes. Uh, don't remember you know, university and, and others, but never, never ran into Pioneer, but you sound like a, an amazing organization. Well, we're, we're growing, and, and the Cleveland Clinic is a very good organization here in, here in Northeast Ohio, and right, quite honestly, worldwide. Um, their model is different. Their model is, is tertiary and quaternary care, and they do it very well. And so what we've said is let's, let's not try to compete with that. Let's work on the primary care side. And so if our patients need to be seen by Cleveland Clinic providers, great. They're going to get fantastic care. Our goal is to keep them out of any health system uh, initially. Great. And Rick, anything you want to add to, you know, quite an impressive national presence uh, for Privia? Yeah, I think, um, you know, you, when you operate at a national scale, you see a lot of differences across a lot of different markets. And I think that's one of the more interesting parts of what we do. And, you know, the old cliche, healthcare is local, is very true. And you can have these technologies, these models, incentives that are more standardized across markets. But at the end of the day, it's, it's about, is a caregiver taking better care of a patient, right? And there's sort of no magic around some of that. Um, and I think that, you know, we really believe in, in giving physicians, local physicians, that autonomy and influence and power to make the right decision. And that's just something I'm, uh, as a non-physician, no credentials, uh, you'd be, um, you know, unimpressed with my, my resume uh, from an education perspective. But, you know, what gives me hope is that I think of, of all different types of professions, uh, yes, physicians are ambitious. Yes, they're very competitive, but they're very altruistic. And I think when you give them the right data and the right aligned incentives, uh, they figure it out. And that, that's what I think is most encouraging around value-based care. I do also, uh, just to get to an earlier point, I think value-based care is sort of in the messy middle of its implementation. And hey, Value-based care is in my job title, so I should be defending it, you know, <laughs> as hard as I can. Um, but the reality is, you know, you have to be careful not to drink the Kool-Aid. And you have to say, well, where does value-based care make sense? Where does it not make sense? Uh, again, like I was saying before, what are the stage in which the physician or the payer is in? Because if you make that jump to global capitation on day one, you probably are making the wrong decision or, or, or not the most thoughtful decision. And so you really got to be, be smart about that. And um, I think it's just a very interesting time for the industry in this messy middle and navigating through it um, and, and getting to the other side of it. But um, I, think, I, think we'll, I think we will figure it out. Yeah, we had um, uh, Dr. Robert Groves from Banner Aetna, Michael McNutt, got him to speak uh, a couple months ago. And he said, until we move off of the models that are still based on fee-for-service, you know, until you get to, a, you know, an ACP LAN, uh, CAT4, you know, full risk, which seems like both your organizations are doing well at, um, it's going to take a lot, it's going to be more of a mess, Rick. Um, so he, he was a real, you know, strong uh, negative. And I, I loved it because it was a great conversation we had um, where he was like, you know, 
the CAT 2, CAT 3 is still based on a fee-for-service model. So until we break that and move to a full risk, uh, it's, it's going to be a long way off before we <clears throat> fully migrate away from fee-for-service. Yeah, and I think it's really hard. I mean, what you've essentially, when you've got that, you're right in terms of still a significant part of reimbursement is designed by or is based off of uh, that that fee for service and reimbursement relative to what you might hear a payer CEO. We have 90% of our patients in value-based care. Well, you're still probably paying your provider's 90% fee for service. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, loose numbers. I'm sure there's there's better numbers out there. But I think, you know, part of the challenge as a physician group, think of doc, Dr. Dom Dare as an example of a small physician group. They already have the complexity of fee for service. Now we've added more complexity in terms of value-based care on top of that. HEC coding as one of the examples we we just said. They didn't lose the fee-for-service complexity, right? That's still there. That still pays a lot of the bills on a day-to-day basis. And so I think that's what the industry has to figure out is really how do we how do we evolve to value-based care uh, and get through this messy middle and also figure out how to reduce the burden and complexity on individual physicians because it's very, very difficult to juggle all these different balls simultaneously, uh, and it's not getting any easier. Any last words, Dr. Dumdera? Um, no, no, other, other than to, to echo what Rick just said and, and to say that uh, I, I, I do believe value-based care is, is the future, especially from a primary care perspective. I, I think rewarding physicians based on the quality of care versus the quantity of care uh, is a good way to, good way to go about it. Like a lot of things in life, the devil's in the details. And so how it gets implemented and what support is there is really crucial. But I think ultimately it is a value-based landscape that we're walking through and will be walking through for a long time. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast, where the healthcare IT community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find all our episodes as well as information on our association on our website, wedi.org. Thank you for joining us and be safe.